turn in your copy of Scripture to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about this. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. Um, cover some background on the book of Genesis before we jump in. Um, the author is Moses. Uh, attributed to Moses, there are always disagreements, always people who want to disagree with who the author of any book is in Scripture, but it's generally agreed that the author is indeed Moses. Uh, People date the book of Genesis to either 1445 B.C. or 1290 B.C. There are many people in favor of that late date, 1290. Uh, I am in favor of the early date, uh, 1445 B.C., because most of the Internal evidence, the textual evidence of Scripture points to a 1445 B.C. date for the book being written, which is still very interesting because that means there are many creation stories or a few creation stories that were written down, recorded before Moses recorded this one. And we'll probably get a little more into that as we walk through the text, uh, why this creation story coming after some others is probably more likely true than the others, uh, even though there are many similarities. Um, the genre of the book of Genesis is history. Uh, Moses wrote it to be taken as a literal history, and so I take the entire book as a literal history. And some people separate out Genesis 1 through 11 from Genesis 12 through 50 and say 12 through 50 That's history, but 1 through 11 is myth, and I need to say something about that too, because Genesis 1 through 11 is is different. Uh, That is what Moses records um, leading up to the choosing of Abraham out of the land of Ur, and Abraham then becomes the forefather of national Israel. Um, So Genesis 1 through 11 covers history on on a broader basis, and then when you get to chapter 12, all of a sudden everything's very specific concerning very, very specific uh, people, very, very specific nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11, I do not think those should be separated from 12 through 50. I think it is one cohesive work, but Genesis 1 through 11, I think it does fall into the myth genre, and I have to be very careful to, to say the myth genre because I do not think it is legend. I do not think it is fictional. Um, A myth or mythology is simply a creation story or a story concerning things unseen. So examples of things that fall into the myth genre are the story of Zeus and Hercules, right? The Greek creation of the world. The Aeneid, the founding of Rome by a group of Trojans. And there may be some truth in that, but overall it's probably Legend. The story of King Arthur and his round table and his knights is myth, but it is fictional. It is legend. There was no King Arthur. In fact, that fictional story was probably, that fictional character was probably appropriated by the English, um, and they used a king, a Viking king, as their example for King Arthur. So, King Arthur, if he existed, was probably more a Viking than an Englishman which is very interesting to me. And that's how myth becomes legend. Some other things that are myth genre uh, that are closer to truth than legend would be the current, uh, maybe, and we can't know this for sure, right? People made an estimated guess. They looked at the scientific evidence, made an estimated guess as to how the universe came into being. So we hear story about a, a singularity that expanded and 
the scientific community, or I should say the intellectual community, uh, doesn't try to offer the mechanism behind the expansion of the singularity. They just say, it expanded. We don't know how. Expanded. And matter and time began to exist, um, and the universe is still expanding from that singularity, and that singularity is at the center of the universe. Uh, this story that we are presented with, that is an actual estimated guess about origins of the universe, falls into the myth genre, but not so much into legend. If I am to tell any story about origins concerning a deity or not, it falls into a myth genre. All legend is probably myth, but not all myth is legend. So some myths are true, some myths are false. Legends are most always false, fictional. And so I want to draw a distinction between those two words. I'll probably be using those two words throughout our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, The first 11 chapters of Genesis looks a lot like the ancient Near East myths. Again, talking about genre, not veracity here, the ancient Near East myths that preceded it. And so you read Gilgamesh, and you read other Mesopotamian literature, and you read the stories about the gods of Egypt, and then you read Genesis 1 through 11, and the stories look eerily similar. And there are many similarities within those stories, from a from claim of a global flood to the creation of humankind in some kind of garden, though in some of those stories the garden is on the back of a turtle, but not in the Bible. That's another ancient Near East myths, okay? Um, from the presence of a serpent to the eating of fruit from a tree that has been forbidden, there are similarities in the stories that we read, uh, far-ranging similarities, which is one reason I think Genesis 1 through 11 does fall into the myth genre, unlike Genesis 12 through 50. But again, I think the story is factual, and I think it is true. I think it represents reality. Where it presents historical account, I think it is absolutely true in the historical account it presents. I believe Genesis 1 through 11, um, whereas many people who read it do not Um, And I want to warn us, before we jump into chapter 1, verse 1, I want to warn us against doing what most people do when they start looking at the creation story, Um, especially if we already have a Christian worldview, and we start looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the temptation is for us to look at this and immediately, immediately resort to apologetics to try to defend the text of scripture. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a place for that. But here in the pulpit, I am to be concerned about the exposition of scripture, not the appropriation of apologetics to try to defend whatever it is I'm reading and whatever it is I believe. So while the sermons through Genesis 1 through 11 will have some apologetics involved, the point of the messages will be to exposit the text of scripture. What did the author intend we glean from this? And I fear that when we major on the apologetic side of things, trying to defend this historical account, we actually miss what the scriptures have for us. And so apologetics actually becomes an idol of sorts because we're trying to defend against science, which does not even make sense because science is a discipline. It is a 
way of doing things. Science itself does not make truth claims. It is a method. There are individuals who claim to be scientific who make truth claims. They say are scientific truth claims, but science science is not a worldview. It is a it is a method. And most of the people using that method and making truth claims are actually called materialists. And uh, we need to realize that there's a difference. I love to use science. I am not a materialist, so to speak. That being said, I want to walk through the first five verses with you this morning here in Genesis chapter 1. So let's read the first five verses together. I'll be reading from the NASB. If you are reading from another translation, you will notice some notable differences in the text, at least one notable difference. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Y'all are gonna y'all are gonna laugh at me because I'm gonna geek out so much while I'm walking through this. Okay, starting over. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. You'll notice a difference there if you're reading a translation other than the New American Standard, where the New American Standard says one day, other translations say the first day. Day And we'll explain why that difference exists when we get to verse 5. But as a good expositor and as a church that's dedicated to expository preaching and teaching, where should we start? In the beginning. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's where we'll start. So in the beginning, and I do want to stop there and consider this phrase, in the beginning. Uh, here we see the creation or the of time, right? The beginning. Uh, Scripture recognizes, Moses recognized this, that in the grand scheme of things, there is a beginning. Now, philosophically speaking, if someone is to believe that there is no beginning, they, they automatically have to resort to some kind of infinite regression of events, uh, which seems to me nonsensical. Uh, you're basically saying that everything that exists has always existed and never began to exist, yet new things come into existence all the time, from babies to new trees, right? There's not an infinite regression of events. To consider an infinite regression of past events would, would boggle the mind. It is impossible to think about. I can say I know that I had a beginning. My mom is sitting here in the auditorium, okay? I had a beginning. My life began. There was a point at which I came into existence. Well, where did I come from? My, when two people fall in love. My mom and my, I came from my, my mom and my dad, right? Where did they come from? Their parents. Where did they come from? Their parents and 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 their parents on down the line. Now, if you're a materialist, you can't, you can't really 
appeal to infinite regression to explain a person's existence. Even a materialist will say, yeah, there had to be a point at which life began to exist, in which the world came into existence, in which the universe came into existence. There had to be a source. And no one claims that the universe came out of nothing. Even the Christian expression ex nihilo doesn't refer to just matter of fact out of nothing. No, there was, there was something. There was someone that someone is God who transcends space and time. And when he spoke, the universe came into existence. So the universe came into existence out of God's command, out of his word, out of his breath, which we'll also see in this text, which is amazing. So nobody claims matter-of-fact ex nihilo. Nobody in their right mind claims infinite regression of events, an infinite regression of life, an, inf- an infinite regression of matter, or an infinite regression of, of energy or time. Nobody claims that. Why? Because it is nonsensical. Even Stephen Hawking had to revert to imaginary space and time to explain real space and time, which is what he called what we experience now. Like, we have to, we have to, to refer to something that gave birth to the universe we are in if we want to be philosophically sound. And here Moses does that in the beginning. There is a beginning. There was a beginning to everything that exists. And then the next word, God. In the beginning, God created Now we think about this. Moses appeals to a being here who is unlike any being in other ancient Near East literature, other ancient Near East documents. He refers to a being who actually transcends time. And this being's first act resulted in creation. I don't know if people realize how genius this statement is. Like how much this impacts worldview and philosophy and everything, right? Because in other ancient Near East literature, they weren't thinking about this type of God. They had gods who existed within the universe, who didn't transcend the universe. They had to use the universe, and they had to use materials to create, to create people, right? But not this God transcends. And when he acts, his first act, creation, time and space result almost as if you need a sequence in order for any action to take place. And you think about Newton's laws, right? With every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. That's, that's basic physics, right? You have to have action before you have reaction. And, and there, even in the laws of physics, there's a sequence of Events. So when we think about sequence, like that's what Moses is, is referring to here. God created. This is the first act. And in God's creation, when he spoke, it actually resulted in sequence. And so you can believe, if you want, that there is an infinite regression of events in space-time. And you can begin, if you want, that there was merely a singularity that suddenly expanded into the universe we know today. Or and I find this to be more plausible, right? You can believe that there was actually a being who intentionally acted. He transcended space and time, but when he intentionally acted, it resulted in the creation of space-time. In the beginning, God created. And he created the heavens and the earth. Heavens here 
doesn't refer to the ethereal heaven that we normally talk about when we say heaven. Heavens here actually refers to the cosmos, beginning with, from our perspective, Earth's sky, the outer atmosphere, and going on into outer space, the cosmos. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is interesting because all the heavens and the earth, they were created simultaneously, according to verse 1 here. All the stars, the planetary objects, the nebulae, the clusters and superclusters, they came into existence, or at least their matter came into existence, all here at the beginning in God's first act, creation. And the earth was formless and void. Void there meaning empty. So there was a space rock that didn't have form. We're going to learn in a minute that it had enough water, H2O, on it that the surface was covered. There was enough, there was enough hydrogen and oxygen in the atmosphere to condense into water. And it covered the surface of the earth, but the earth was formless. It was without form. There were no mountains. It might not have been a sphere at this point. It's formless. There were no valleys. It looked like all the other space rocks, which I think is important too, right? It was indistinguishable from other planetary objects in outer space. Well, you look across the night sky, and you can't see them with the naked eye, but we can see pictures of them because we, there, there are telescopes now on planet Earth, and there are satellites who fly. Satellites who fly? Satellites that fly across the universe taking pictures of planetary objects. Some are looking for life. Some are just interested in the geography of alien planets. But we get to see these pictures. And planets across the universe look very similar. And there are many planets that look very similar to planet Earth, covered in water with atmospheres. Now, to my knowledge, we haven't found life yet. Right? But we realize that Earth, there's nothing really that different about Earth from other planets we know about, except for the existence of life vegetation and fish and beasts and snakes and people birds that's the only thing that distinguishes the earth from other earth-like planets and so at this time genesis chapter 1 verse 1 the earth is hurling through the cosmos at a speed unknown away from the the singularity where god spoke creation into existence formless and empty, indistinguishable, unimportant, probably small compared to other planetary objects because it's still small compared to other planetary objects. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Well, if God already created the cosmos, light shot out across the universe. Stars are forming, gases are condensing, burning. 
How can there be darkness over the surface of the deep? And now we're getting into a question that I asked as a teenager that no one could answer for me. One of the things that I find in modern day religion is that many people are uninterested in answering really difficult questions, either uninterested or don't know how and don't know how to find the correct answer, don't know the right people to contact to find answers to things. Okay. And here I want to issue a challenge to the Christian community. Anyone listening to or watching this to our congregation here, and that is strive not to be ignorant concerning the reality of things. And where the Bible seems to contradict current knowledge or theories, investigate. Don't have blind faith what you think may be wrong. And don't just forsake the Bible because of what you hear others teach about it. I was driven to investigate, driven to find the answers, driven to figure out what the Bible actually meant rather than just believe everything I was taught growing up in church. Because people teach a lot of different things. It's important for us to investigate. Well, preacher, I thought you were going to be expository this morning and only teach us what the Bible says instead of issuing challenges that aren't there in the text. Let me give you some texts that issue that challenge right there. The challenge to reason together, not to be ignorant, to love the truth and righteousness. And you can write these down and you can read them later and be encouraged to investigate the world that God has made. Because the more we know about the universe, the more we know about the God who created the universe. You can read that one in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, by the way. Some other references here. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 Acts chapter 17 verse 17 Romans chapter 12 verse 1 Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 25 Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 and chapter 2 verse 8 First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 21 First Peter chapter 3 verse 15 James chapter 3 verse 17 and I'm sure there are many 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 more you can also check out my notes later if you didn't have time to write all those down. There are many places in Scripture where we are actually encouraged not to have a blind faith, but to reason together. To love the truth, to know more about God, to know more about the universe that God has created. So physics is a good, good thing. So I had questions here about verse 2. How could there be darkness over the surface of the deep? Later on, we see that God creates light. That's here in verse 3, like, let there be light, and there is light. And this actually happens before God tells the stars to come into existence, which is really weird to me too. And so I started asking, like, scientifically, people have discovered through observation that stars produce light. Verse 1 says that God created the heavens, which seems to include the stars. Yet verse 2 says that there's darkness over the surface of the waters. 
even though stars exist. And if God does create light at this point, why does the light precede stars? So I was asking this question. It seems, it seems nonsensical the way it's being taught, like the order of creation. God creates light, and then he creates the stars. But carefully, like look at the wording here. And we can, we can picture what's happening. For the earth is formless and void, and darkness is over the surface of the deep. So there are the ingredients necessary for water to be on the earth. There are other water planets in the universe. There's water. And it seems to be that water right now covers the entire surface of the whole earth. Well, what do you need? for water to exist without dissipating into outer space or freezing entirely. You, you absolutely have to have an atmosphere. There's, there's no way to get around that. You have to have an atmosphere. And you read, like, scientific accounts, even from a non-Christian worldview, about the early earth. And what do you have? A lot of water and a thick, a thick atmosphere full of nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen. And materialists, from their perspective, they're using this to try to disprove God, which is really interesting to me, because if you have, you have a thick atmosphere full of nitrogen, oxygen, and, and hydrogen, right, and the ingredients necessary for life, you have the kind of atmosphere that has to be present for the, for the Bible to be accurate which is really interesting to me for the atmosphere to block the light of the cosmos and for there no longer to be light here. So in verse 1, we see everything happening from a bird's eye view. And then in verse 2, all of a sudden, we start talking about the perspective of planet Earth. It's formless and void. There's darkness over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, I find this to be amazing, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, waters. And in verse 1, the first mention of God, the name Moses uses to name God or to talk about God is the word Elohim in Hebrew. Now, Elohim is an interesting word because it's plural, referring to God. So from verse 1, on, we know that there's some kind of plurality being referred to here, and that's just a grammatical interpretation there, right? Singular would be El. Elohim is plural. And so in this plurality of God, we suddenly see the Spirit of God moving over the surface of the waters. And if you don't know that God is plural in verse 1, then when you get the spirit of God, then all of a sudden you're like, wait, here's another being that exists within the material universe. How did this being come into existence? But from verse 1, if God is plural, Elohim, it makes sense that this, this, this other person, now that is being referred to, existed in the beginning, was God, and was with God in the beginning, the spirit of God. So this is part of the plurality of God. And at this point in the text, remember, this is the very first like revelation that God gave the nation of Israel. The only book written prior to Genesis was probably Job, and I don't know if the nation of Israel had that at this time, right, had access to it, I don't know. In the very first two verses, like, the plurality of God is revealed to us. 
and we know that this plurality consists of one person. We don't know his name yet, right? And a second person, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit is the Spirit of God, almost as if the Spirit proceeds from this other person of the Godhead. And we don't know how, how many persons there are in this plurality, but we know there are at least two at this point. And we read into the New Testament, and we learn that there's Trinity. There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But at this point in the text, all we see is one person. We don't know who this person is yet. And the Spirit of God, as if the Spirit proceeds from this other person. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, how much of the earth was covered in water at this point? Probably all of it. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. A spirit in Hebrew is sounds something like ruah. And this word means breath. And this word means spirit. And this word means mind. And the picture we receive here is that the earth, formless, void, water, thick atmosphere, and then this being like wind over the surface of the waters, like this spirit is omnipresent, is everywhere over the whole earth, moving over the surface of the waters. And I don't think it's just like physical movement like wind. I I think this is like about to do something big, right? Like moving. We talk about the spirit moving. I think that's what it is. It's moving over the surface of the entire earth, over the surface of the waters. And then God said, probably here through his spirit, who's moving over the surface of the entire earth, and God said, let there be light and there was light the text doesn't give us a method as to how the light came to be on the earth notice verse 3 the verse does not say at this moment God created light no there is darkness on the earth God says let there be light and there is light it does not give us a, a method there how the light came to be on the earth. And my thought is when God commanded, the atmosphere opened and light entered. God creates the light and God commands the light. That is what we learn here. And God saw that the light was good. Hold on, hold on a minute. After God creates, and after God reveals, after God does something, he takes the time to step back and look at the work of his hands. Here I'm being metaphorical. At this, God doesn't have hands like we have hands. Okay, we say the work of his hands. That's, that's metaphorical. Okay, He looks at the work of his hands, and he actually takes the time to say, I see that that's good. It is good. 
that there is light on this otherwise indistinguishable planet that I have selected to work on. It is good. But from the very beginning here, it seems God is concerned about recognizing the goodness of his own work. That God is interested in receiving glory from the work of his hands. I do not think God has changed. And there might be something to say later on in this chapter we're going to read that humankind were created in the image of God. There might be something to the idea that when we work and we create, that first of all, we're interested in doing well, but, but that at the end of a project, we step back and we, and we look at it and we say, you know what? I think that's good. Praise God for making me able. And praise God for the work of my hands. And then for, like God does, enjoying, enjoying the fruit of our labor to his glory and his honor. Because he's the one who set the example in the first place. And he's the one who created us in his image. And he created us to to create. Because that is who he is and we are a picture of him. And so what we create then can be can be so good and we should recognize that. Right? God saw that it was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And this, I think, presents more evidence to to the fact that this light was already existing in the universe and was revealed upon planet Earth. Because when the light shone on the Earth, one side of the Earth was still dark. And God called the light side of the Earth day and the dark side of the Earth night. He distinguished it This is his work. This is his creation. And there was evening and there is morning. One day. And we do not know from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 1, verse 5, we do not know how much time has passed. Scripture doesn't give us a time frame reference here. In fact, it doesn't even make sense to try to calculate the time there. First of all, there was no one there to count the time, right? Except for God. But how does God count time? Does he count it in earth days? Seems probably unlikely, right? A day on every planet is a different number of hours. And even the hours that we have are socially constructed, right? And the designation of time is something so abstract it doesn't make sense to to clock the universe with our time frame. So I don't think God's interested in doing that. 
especially since we don't have a time reference until we get to verse 5, not knowing how much time has passed. And in verse 5, in the New American Standard, it says one day, and in other English translations it says the first day, and you go and you look at the Hebrew account, and there is no definite article. So the, the correct way that this should be translated, and I, when I was looking at this, the first time I ever looked at this, I had to stop and I had to email my Hebrew professor to make sure I was seeing the Hebrew text right and make sure it really meant one day instead of the first day, right? So I emailed a Hebrew professor that I had in the past, and I was like, hey, I'm not seeing a definite article here. Shouldn't this be translated? And I guess I hadn't read the NASB yet, right? I said, shouldn't this be translated one day instead of, instead of the first day? And he emailed me back, and he said, yes, but, but stay quiet about that, right? Something to that effect. Yes, but stay quiet about that, because it's a matter of dogma for so many, I guess. But it really should be translated one day and not the first day. We don't know how many revolutions the earth had before this point. We don't know how much time God spent doing what he did. I have no problem believing it was a short amount of time. I have no, no hardship saying it was a long amount of time because the Bible just doesn't say. He just said there was evening and there was morning one day. This is the first day the earth has had light on it. This is the first day that... Uh, that darkness has been distinguished from light upon the surface of the earth. There was evening and there was morning one day. And with that, we come to the end of verse 5. The end of what happened one day in the history of the universe. The work of God's hands. The opening of the Bible. And we think about what application there must be for our lives. God gave us this text for, for a reason, for his purpose. And I think, I think the primary takeaway we have from this text is, one, God is interested in his glory. Why did God create? Genesis answers these questions, right? Why would God create anything, first of all? Second of all, why would, he, why would he create people? It doesn't make sense. We're a wretched lot, right? Why would God create us, especially knowing that we're going to mess up like we did? Why would, why would God allow people to sin in the first place? Why would he create a, a being who would rebel against him? Why? Why would he, even today, allow people to go on in their sin? Why would he allow people to commit genocide? Why would he allow so much suffering in the universe and the world? Why would God... Why would God do that? In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it answers these questions. And we will answer these questions as we continue to move through the text. Today, we see the answer as to why God would create. And that answer is for his glory. We see truths about Trinitarian belief in God in this text. We see truths about the existence of the universe and the finite nature of the universe. We see this truth that the earth is insignificant compared to other planets until God begins to specifically work on this planet that he has called earth. 
maybe that's true for, for everything, right? God creates light in this story. God creates light. In, for instance, John's gospel, God is called light. He is the light. In Genesis chapter 1, God opens up the atmosphere and reveals light on earth and shows how it's different from darkness and even designates it. This is daytime, this is nighttime. And In John's gospel, John appropriates the language of creation here. The light came into the world, but men love the darkness. Seems to me that nothing is created unless God creates it. And it seems to me that nothing is revealed unless God reveals it. And that includes God himself. So maybe there is darkness in our hearts from the moment we are born, metaphorically now speaking, right? And maybe our prayer should be, God, reveal yourself. Open up the walls around our hearts. Reveal your light in our hearts and in our minds. Enlighten us. Take us captive. Choose us, otherwise insignificant people, and do your mighty work in us. Amen.